Blog Talk Radio. Bishop Wayne 
by invited and Bishop Wayne T. Jackson, whose Detroit Black Church Trump visited this fall while campaigning around uh, out the leaders, the religious leaders. No, but while campaigning, round out the religious leaders attending for Trump. Whatever, they're all all the, all the wax and the jacks are going to be there. It's going to be a real fun thing to see. I'll tell you that. Thank God. I don't know. I don't know what we would like to do, but it's going to be fun to see, babe. Oh, so much fun. Why is Denmark ranked the happiest in the world by the UN? Well, they work 33 hours a week. They have a $20 minimum wage. They have free universities, free health care, and free child care. So that's why they're so happy. Yeah, they don't have to work very hard. Young men are giving up on marriage. Women aren't women anymore. Oh, really? By Lifetime News. Mm, Naturally, blame women. Well, that's what they're saying. I thought that was interesting. You want to read it or you want men to read it? You want a man to read it? Well, it seems stupid, but fewer young men. <laughs> but you can read it. Cause you well, women want, don't want to get married either. Yeah. Want to get married than ever. Well, the desire for marriage is rising among young women, according to the Pew Research Center. Well, I have, that's news to me. Pew, oh, recently, Pew, fo- joke anyway, so Pew recently found that the number of women, 18 to 34, are saying that uh, having a successful marriage is one of the most important things rose from 28% to 37% since 1997. The number of young adult men saying the same thing dropped from 35% to 29%. <laughs> Pew's findings have caught the attention of one U.S. writer who maintains that feminism, deeply entrenched in every segment of the culture, has created an environment in which young men find it more beneficial to simply out off, uh, opt out of coupledom entirely. Coupledom. Okay. All right. Susan Fenker's article, The War on Men, which appeared on the website of Fox News in late November, has become a lodestone for feminist writers who have attacked their her position that the institution of marriage is threatened not enhanced by the supposed gains of the feminist movement over the last 50 years. Where have all the good-meaning, marriageable men gone? Is the question much uh, talked about lately in the secular media, Banker says. But her answers, backed by uh, statistics, is not to the liking of mainstream commentators influenced by feminism. She points out for the first time in U.S. history that the number of men in... uh the number of women in the workforce has surpassed the number of men, and while more women than ever are acquiring university degrees. This the problem. This new phenomenon has changed the dance between men and women, Venker wrote, with feminism pushing them out of their traditional role of breadwinner, protector and provider, and divorce laws increasingly creating a dangerously precarious financial prospect for the men cut loose from marriage. Men are simply no longer finding any benefit in it. As a writer and researcher into the trends of marriage and relationship, Benker said she has accidentally stumbled upon a subculture of men who say in no uncertain terms that they're never getting married. When I ask them why, the answer is always the same. Women aren't women anymore. Feminism, which teaches women to think of men as the enemy, has made women angry and defensive, though often unknowingly. Now that men have nowhere to go, it is precisely this dynamic, women good, 
versus men bad that has destroyed the relationship between the sexes. Yet somehow, men are still to blame when love, love goes awry. Men are tired, Benka wrote. Tired of being told there's something fundamentally wrong with them. Tired of being told that if women aren't happy, it's men's fault. Feminism and the sexual revolution have simply made marriage obsolete for women as a social and economic refuge. But this is a situation that should not be celebrated by feminists, Benker said. It's, it's the women who lose. Not only are they saddled with the consequences of sex by dismissing male nature, therefore for, forever seeking a balanced life, the fact is women need men linear career goals. They need men to pick up the slack at the office in order to live the balanced life they seek. A cross-section of research data from Pew Research Center for the last months of 2012 shows the alarming trend for marriage and childbearing in the U.S. One report uh, published in mid-December said that the latest census data showed barely half of all adults in the United States are currently married, a record low. And since 1960, the number of married adults has decreased from 72% to 51%, and the number of new marriages in the U.S. declined by 5% between 2009 and 2010. Well, this article just goes on, so let's it's find not, it. No, it's right. only no. a few more, few more no. paragraphs. You just don't like it because it bashes beads. No, it's just... It's know. a bead-bashing article. It's you a know generalization, that. and, you know... Uh, it currents, it's current, if current trends continue, the share of adults who are currently married will drop to below half within a few years. And moreover, the link between marriage and child-rearing has become disconnected in the minds of the so-called millennial generation, who between 18 and 29, while 52% of millennials say being a good parent is one of the most important things in life, just 30% say the same thing about having a successful marriage. An attitudinal survey found, wow. The gap of 22 percentage points between the value of millennials placed on parenthood over marriage was just seven points in 1997. The research found that millennials, many of whom are the children of divorce and single parenthood themselves, are also less likely than their elders to say that a child's needs both a father and a mother at home, that single parenthood and unmarried couple parenthood are bad for society. So there you go. Okay. Thought you might like to get a kick out of that. So, yeah. Well, for all of you who we, we, we've talked about the hell of, of aspartame. Oh, it now has a new name. Yeah. Amino sweet. Yeah. So, what's happened is um, aspartame has been renamed and is now being marketed as a natural sweetener called amino sweet. Natural sweetener. How did I get that out of that? A bunch of bastards. Anyway, let's go to. I'm going to go to this article. We're going to read about it. And be warned. You know, Lila, be warned when you chew your gum. But aspartame is now amino sweet. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah. Well, you know, that's over there. Bunch of jerks. So, man, I hate these. These these are getting sneakier and sneakier all the time. You know that? They are. Those pop-ups, jeez, crying a lot. Well, today I had five pop-ups wanting me to take a test, a no, survey. Really? Yeah, oh, it's for every darn thing that I seem to do, They and I don't want to take any surveys. I don't have time. 
Well, aspartame has been one of the most controversial food additives for years, uh, with some even claiming in it one of the most dangerous ingredients used in our food supply. That's right. Okay, so they've and renamed it, so be aware. The official line is that the additive is safe. Regulatory bodies often do their best to ignore the negative uh, results that have come from certain studies. Aspartame has been linked to numerous health problems from seizures all the way to fatal uh, cardiovascular attacks in women. And more recently, um, studies have shown positive links to diabetes and also increases the risk of heart, kidney, and brain damage for crying out Wow. This concern over aspartame is not just a recent problem. Way back in 1967, Har uh, Dr. Harold Wasman, a biochemist at the University of Wisconsin on behalf of the Ciro Company, conducted an experiment regarding the effect of aspartame on baby monkeys. Seven monkeys were fed aspartame mixed with milk. The results, one monkey died and five of the others suffered grand mal seizures. Aww. And despite the, the public uh, controversy surrounding uh, aspartame, on the length of time we have known about the dangers of it, it is somewhat shocking that it is still found in many of the popular food items consumed today. Now, who was it from the Bush administration that That was, that was Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld. Diet beverages, uh, he was the president of Cyril. Diet beverages, uh, chewing gum, breakfast cereals, all contain this artificial sweetener, which is regarded as an excitotoxin. In a crafty marketing move, aspartame can now be labeled under the name amino sweet in an effort to fool consumers into thinking the product they are buying is aspartame free. Do not be fooled. And marketed marketed under the name brands of NutraSweet or Equal, aspartame is used as an artificial sweetener in many diet versions of food. In the 1980s, the CEO of Searle, Donald Rumsfeld, Feld, Feld. campaigned for an, its approval to be allowed in foods, and now, with the blessing of the FDA, how many millions more people will be duped into consuming this harmful chemical? And aspartame is created by using genetically modified bacteria in the USA. In the European Union, it is codified as food additive E951. And believe it or not, it's made out of bacteria. E. coli bacteria. Yes. Yeah. That's a freaking amazing. Isn't that something? That's t totally, totally unbelievable. But that's, that's our system. How the U.S. deliberately destroyed Iraq's water supply and now Syria's supply. Would you like to read that? I don't know. Well, no, Global I don't. research? No? Well, let's think see we what else pass? there is. You think we should pass on that? I well, don't think so. They uh, seem to take the water supply of every municipality. See, nothing really came to light uh, before Christmas. Remember, they were trying to uh, buy up the water rights in one of our local towns. Yeah, and, and then they realized that all these guys, you know, Flint, Michigan, and all these guys. But no, it, I don't know what happened with that. It kind of dropped out of our local yeah, Oh, sure, they're, they're still drinking it. They're still drinking it. They haven't no, shit. No, that okay. isn't what I asked. And, and, no, Leo, you didn't listen. Okay, what's they your were, question? The, que the, the question was, before Christmas, about a month ago, they brought up 
how Nestle, I think, was trying to buy the water rights in one of our local towns. Yeah, in... um, Was it Bloomfield around there? New Hartford or someplace there, the the big big reservoir. I don't know exactly where it was. It was outside of Hartford. Bloomfield, I think you're right, Bloomfield. Outside of Hartford. They, they, They wouldn't let them. But I don't know what happened with that. There was the I didn't follow up, but, but I, I don't know yeah. whether it was dropped or whether it went through. They tried to they tried to stop it. Uh, mm. This incisive and careful documented article by Professor Thomas Negi was first published on Global Research in September of two thousand and one. This is interesting. But this is the one about water. As I saying. A similar and comparable operation in Syria has now been launched by using U.S.-supported al-Qaeda opposition rebels with the help of white helmets to undermine and determine and destroy the system of water supply in Damascus, Syria. This issue has been casually ignored by the Western media and a self-proclaimed international community. While the modus operandi in the case of Syria differs from the described, the differs from that described by Professor Nagy, it nevertheless confirms a pattern. In Syria, this diabolical operation carried out by U.S.-backed terrorists uh, constitutes the ultimate crime against humanity, which is poisoning their water. Horrible. In regards to Iraq, President Thomas Nagy, uh, Professor Thomas Nagy of George Washington University, D.C., revealed the existence of defense intelligence agency documents proving beyond a doubt Contrary to the Geneva Convention, the U.S. government intentionally used sanctions against Iraq to degrade the country's water supply after the Gulf War. Jeez, God. Nice, huh? The United States knew the cost that civilian Iraqis, mostly children, would pay, and it went ahead anyway. In, two, in May, 2000, in May 12, 1996, some of the horrible consequences of this policy were revealed when the uh, CBS News program, 60 Minutes, reported that roughly half a million uh, Iraqi children had died as a consequence of U.S.-imposed sanctions. Can you imagine that? Huh. Oh, and Madeleine Albright approved it all. Oh, yeah. This led to Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's infamous answer to the question, is the price worth it? Her reply was, yes, we think the price was worth it to kill a half a million kids. Albright uh, later apologized not for the murderous policy, but which she was partially responsible, but rather for the fact that her answer to the above question had aggravated our public relations problem. Yeah. Least. As to the um, as to domestic reaction, her comment went re- unremarkable. Unremarked in the U.S. press. Yeah, in the U.S. Subsequently, in 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Using the strategy of rapid dominance, more popularly known as shock and awe, and the object of this uh, strategy was to paralyze the enemy's will to carry on through the disruption of means of communication, transportation, food production, water supply, and other aspects of infrastructure. One of the targets of bombing campaign that led off the invasion was Iraq's electric grid, and that, uh, that directly impacted the country's ability to process clean water. This important study by Professor Nagy was among the first articles published by Global Research. It has been a part of the launch of the site of September 9th, uh, 2001. The article was dated August 
Google research was, is very good. This uh, is but, by uh, Michael Chosa Dabuski, uh, Global Research Editor. And uh, we we published in uh, January third. But um, it's a, it's it's genocide, man. I mean, it's just genocide, and you, you have to understand that it is. You know what I mean? Mm. This is funny. This is a funny article. Yeah. It turns out, marijuana legalization. <laughs> They're going to hand out 4,200 4, joints during the, uh, well, in Washington, D.C. It's legal. Not to carry around 4,200 joints. There's going to be 4,200 people passing, passing them out. Yeah. Marijuana legalization activists in the nation's capital plan to hand out thousands of joints um, during President-elect Donald Trump's inauguration. Hmm. Joints. The morning of January 20th, activists will meet 
on the west side of DuPont Circle. Note in the circle itself, which is technically federal land and where marijuana possession of any kind is still technically illegal, and those passing out the joints will carry no more than two ounces of pot, the legal limit in the city. While uh, activists plan to march to the mall for the inaugural parade, another piece of federal land where pot remains illegal, they are not encouraging people to light up the gifted joints until precisely four minutes and 20 seconds. <laughs> four, four, four minutes and 420, you know, uh, into uh, Mr. Trump's inauguration. It's 420 being a popular code for pot. Yeah. Uh, a chief concern among drug reforms uh, advocates is that is what questions Mr. Trump's What action? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, for Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions will take on legalization. Eight states and the uh, district have legalized mar uh, recreational marijuana use through voter initiatives. And while the Obama administration allows states to move forward with legislation, it has not sought to legalize the drug at the federal level. Uh, activists worry that Mr. Sessions, who has spoken out against marijuana legalization in the past, could direct federal uh, authorities to, to crack down on marijuana use in states where the drug is not legal. That that may be true, but uh, it looks like he's not going to have an easy ride to, to, to a nomination, by the way. Mm -hmm. Session. Yeah, because uh, I don't think people like them. No, they 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 denied him long ago because of his racist views, mm -hmm. racist statements and stuff that he said. It looks like they're gonna they're gonna have that problem again. Drug reform advocates are likely to get a better understanding of how Mr. Sessions will handle the matter as Attorney General next week when a confirmation hearing is scheduled. But until advocates hear his plan, they refrain fearful. I remain fearful that recent legalization process progress has uh, made during the last several years could quickly go up in smoke. If we don't keep fighting for what we did, the laws will get reversed. Said Edinger. So that's that's what they're looking at right now. Mm. But I, I I gotta hand it to you. Hand out 4,200. Well, let's see if that happens. They will. They I will. don't know about that. Yeah. Sure they will. Why won't they? Because they're announcing it, and somebody will stop it. That's why. No, it, it, it's, okay. it's legal. All right. So, yeah, sure. anyway, secret superintendent evaluations are unacceptable. Hmm. You want to read that? Yeah. Okay. I thought that was interesting. That's in Connecticut by the University of Connecticut. Uh, Dozens of school districts in Connecticut handle their superintendent's job evaluations out of public view. What are you doing? I think it just went to that. Fostering a wholly unacceptable culture of secrecy that benefits no one. Legislatures must close the loophole that encourages it. If there were only one or two school districts that conducted their superintendent's evaluation behind goals doors, they might be forgiven or at least seen as exceptions that prove the rule. But more than 30% of the school districts contacted during a current investigations said their superintendent's evaluations are conducted orally in executive sessions closed to the public. Unfortunately, the state already allows teacher performance evaluations to remain secret, 
and most administrators can legally avoid public scrutiny as well. Only superintendents' annual performance reviews are required by law to be public. But by holding those evaluations behind closed doors, board members in those 41 districts that acknowledge the practice are purposefully circumventing the point of the state's Freedom of Information Act, and they should hang their heads in shame. Michael W. Perlman, former executive director of Freedom of Information Commission, called it deliberate. They know how to get around the FOI laws by having this communication not in writing. There's no record, and the public is left out of the loop. They learned that by Hillary. Mm. Hillary's, Hillary learned how to do that. So, so it just goes there, on and on about that. You know, it's just yeah, it. uh, whether or not this is okay. I wonder what school districts they are. They are. Um, all of them? No, it said not all of them. It said 41. Well, how the hell are many are there? I don't know, Leo. That's, they just said some of the school districts. Keep going. Farming the school district is among those that hold evaluations in secret. School board chairman uh, Chris Fagan, Christopher Fagan defended the practice, telling the current, we are confident, continually reflected uh, as one of the highest performing districts in the state and in the nation. And that's the true story of the farming of the schools. The proof is in the pudding. If it, if it ain't broke, you don't fix it. The proof is in the results. High performance shouldn't exempt you from the law. Any attempt to deflect public security uh, with cliches should be met with even sharper attention. Mr. Fagan and Farmington officials should make the process fully open. Open meetings, written evaluations, and let the public taste the pudding themselves. Fortunately, not all public officials cower from public scrutiny. Of the 133 school districts that responded to the current inquiries, you know, there's that many in the state, 92 have their superintendents evaluated, are written, and 77 provided actual copies. They normally shouldn't be congratulated for simply following the spirit of the letter of the law, but in the case, but in this case, they should. Uh, this this goes on for another hour, another minute. Uh, if you're doing your job, let's see, Richard Waring, chairman of the Hartford School Board, is among the officials who get it. If you're doing your job, there's nothing to hide. Uh, he said, education is a public function, and public money pays for it. Of course, the people have the right to know what's going on. And Jeffrey Valor, Valor, Viller, 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 Executive Director of Connecticut Council of Foreign Reform, called for a balance between privacy and public interest. There's a certain level of privacy you give up when you sign on as a superintendent, he says. He's right. Legislators must assign the valuation process with the spirit of open government. What do you think of that? Yeah, superintendents only last about six years. Yeah. Very political job. Six years too long. But a CEO of one of those companies. This is. Excuse me a second. This was kind of good news for. I mean, we're we live in Connecticut here. And uh, I was kind of surprised to hear this news today. The gear up for aerospace boom beginning in Connecticut. Oh, I believe it when I see yeah, it. Yeah, me too. Especially since uh, they cut off uh, you know, a whole bunch of Sikorsky jobs. 
Connecticut Aerospace Industry is about to, well, take off, and it should be flying high for years to come. Having oh, a positive. I'd to tell you before you connect. We're number fourth. We're the fourth uh, most moved out of state. I already knew that, Leo. That did. was on the news a couple of days ago. Well, I heard it today. Followed by. So, by George, we didn't announce it. New York, Illinois. Nobody mentioned it. New York, Illinois, um, New Jersey, and Connecticut. You're so smart. That's why I love you so much. Those were the top You are right on the target, man. You listen to NPR crapola. No, well, that's what it was. I don't know. I was on the other station, the AM station. Oh. The source for good news about this aerospace industry is Lockheed Martin, United Technologies, General Dynamics, Lockheed Sikorsky, in a deal with the state announced it will remain in Connecticut and expand its business here, also aided by a tax deal in the st in with the state. UTC's Pratt & Whitney is sharply increasing production, bringing 8,000 people to handle a roughly $1 trillion order backlog. Well, I hope that's true. Add to the, that the general dynamics expansion of its electric boat division with forecast spending of $1.5 billion in Groton and across the border in Rhode Island, to tackle construction of a huge new submarine. Thousands of new workers will be hired in the process. In addition, strong demand for GE's next generation. Commercial jet engine is driving business for the dozens of Connecticut business suppliers that support GE's aircraft engine manufacturing. At least some of the growth in Connecticut is evidence of the effectiveness of the state tax incentives. Just about every state in America these days is offering a host of incentives to lure companies to their jurisdictions to compete nationally and internationally. These incentives are necessary in a fact of life. Even in rural Eastford, our company Whitcraft gets calls just about every week with aggressive proposals to entice the company to pack up and move out of Connecticut. Well, Whitcraft is a supplier of a variety of highly engineered aircraft components. It's not moving. The um, company is expanding here, despite the offers from other states. Like so many of the scores of other companies throughout Connecticut to supply and, uh, this, that, that supply the major aerospace and defense behemoths, uh, remaining in Connecticut is critical. Yes, high cost and the overall climate for business in Connecticut creates significant headwinds for companies like ours and that compete in a global market. But we believe Connecticut has the most skilled, knowledgeable aerospace technicians and engineers in the world, and the state-run program that train and supply that workforce are top-notch. Well, that's interesting to note, isn't it? Mm -hmm. These training programs, however, clearly need to be expanded as the market for skilled aerospace workers grow tighter. Uh, let's make sure the aerospace industry can continue to hire Connecticut residents and not to force to import them from other states. For Woodcraft in particular, the Pratt & Whitney backlog will continue to be a major driver of growth, growth that uh, already has uh, begun in, in leaps and bounds. And from discussions with peers, I know many other aerospace and submarine contractors have experienced the same pressures. Woodcraft uh, already has added engineers and production personnel from Eli and Cheney Technical Schools from Manchester and Quinnebog Valley Community Colleges 
and from other state universities, including Central Connecticut University and UConn. In addition, we run our own in-house training and apprenticeship programs, expanding the skill of our incumbent workforce. And still, we need to hire more. In fact, we have more than a dozen job openings right now across our three Connecticut facilities, and we fully expect more openings down the road. In addition to a state effort, to support Connecticut technical schools at the secondary school level and at the community college and community levels, training for new workers must be ramped up to meet the increased demand, especially as highly skilled older workers begin to retire and must be replaced. The next way to, re to support the flight of our, space, our state's aerospace industry is to give Connecticut workers all the skills, knowledge, and abilities they'll need be competitive in a worldwide market while competing, while keeping their feet planted in our state. And there you go, babe. Mm. What do you think of that? I was surprised. I was happy to hear that. I, I hope it's it. true. Yeah, me too. This was interesting. Now, John Podesta's email password was password. Huh. They're telling you never to have that. No, but what, what a friggin' idiot the guy was. This guy was a complete boob. He said that it was. It, it took a 14-year-old to attack into Podesta's email. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has said 14-year-old could have hacked into emails of Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman. Okay, Podesta's email. The whole system of boobs. Yeah, it was made public by the whistleblowing website and proved to be a hammer blow to the Democratic election campaign as he lost out as she lost out to Trump. In an interview, Assange revealed the campaign chairman's password was password and that he had responded to phishing emails, and that he had responded to phishing emails. The, 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 uh, the WikiLeaks founder said he was 1,000% confident that the Russians did not hack the Clinton campaign, adding Barack Obama was trying to delegitimize the Trump administration. And he uh, says... A 14-year-old kid could have hacked Podesta that that way, Assange told Sean Hannity. Hannity. <laughs> and uh, um, he added, Clinton made almost no attempt to secure her private emails, which featured in more than 50,000 leaked documents published by WikiLeaks. Assange, who was interviewed by the Ecuadorian embassy in, in, in London, also said he questioned whether U.S. media outlets would have done the same. It's more like, you rub my back, I rub yours. I'll give you information, you'll come to, my, to, you'll come to my, I'll invite you to my child's christening or my next big party, he said in the interview, referring to the Clinton party relationships with the reporters. Uh -huh. uh, President-elect Trump reacted to the news by tweeting, Julian Assange said a 14-year-old girl, a 14-year-old rather, could have hacked Podesta. Why? Why was DNC so careless? Also said Russians did not give him the info. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it was just amazing how, how stupid this guy could be. Yeah, Assange, whose interview with Sean Hannity aired on Fox News last night, also re reiterated his claims that Russia was not involved with the hacks. He told Hannity that a thousand percent confidence that the Russian government was not responsible for emails stolen from the Democratic National Committee and Podesta, John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman. 
Those emails were published online by WikiLeaks in the lead-up to the November 8th vote. And Democrats claimed that hacks were a deliberate attempt to undermine Mrs. Clinton's campaign and boost support for Donald Trump. Last week, as the row intensified, Obama expelled 35 Russian diplomats from the country. They arrived back in Russia on Monday morning. Moscow denies any involvement in the election-related uh, hacking. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, Assange is currently living under political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he sought refuge from the Swedish investigation into rape allegations for his 2010 visit to the country, which was proved false. And the interview uh, marked his first face-to-face TV news appearance. Speaking to Hannity about the WikiLeaks revelation, he said, we can say we have said uh, repeatedly that over the last two months that our sources is not the government, Russian government is not a state party. Our publication had wide update take by the American people. They're all true. Our publications, our publications had a wide uptake by the American people, and they're all true. But that's not the allegation that being presented by the Obama White House. So why such a dramatic response? Well, the reason is obvious. They're trying to delegitimize the Trump administration as it goes into the White House. Uh, They are trying to say that President-elect Trump is not a legitimate president. The last, uh, last week, Obama expelled 35 Russians over the hacking allegations during the presidential election, and the U.S. government accused the diplomats of acting in a manner inconsistent with diplomatic status, euphemism for spying, and gave them 72 hours to leave the country. Imagine that. And uh, using Cold War rhetoric, he said the hacking could only have been directed by the highest levels of the Russian government, suggesting Russian President Vladimir Putin was responsible. But the Russian government dismissed hacking allegations as absurd, but Putin declined uh, to order a tit-for-tat expulsion of American diplomats, claiming he would not stoop to Obama's level. And he said he would consider the action of President-elect Trump, who takes office on January 20th, uh, when deciding on further steps for Russia. And I think this is so incredible. But this is the last uh, minute of that interview with Assange. If I can get it. Of course, there's an advertisement that you can't skip through.
because I see someone who is um, eaten alive uh, by their ambitions, mm. tormented uh, literally to the point uh, uh, where they they become sick. You know, they faint as a result of going on and going on with their ambition. I agree with him. She's uh, a sick woman. Yeah, uh, that was Julian Assange's report. So, uh, but anyway, that, that that's pretty freaky, man. and uh, very important. I I I appreciate Assange for what he did. Well, here's another one. Oh, so much for the uh, peacemaker. Obama administration sold more weapons than any other since uh, than any other since World War Two. And remember, folks, he ran on a platform of peace. Remember yeah, that? Yeah. He was such a liar. <laughs> but and got the peace prize. And what got a the Nobel joke. Prize, yeah. That made me sick to my stomach. They want to know anything. Obama's I don't want to read this whole thing. The fact is, he sold two hundred billion of arms to the Middle East. In two thousand eight to two fifteen. It ended up in the peace middle in the uh, that ended up in the Middle East, uh, according to the Congressional Research Service, published in December. So that's it. Yeah, the report promised uh, produced a nonpartisan government uh, agency attached to the Library of Congress breaks down the weapons sold that included surface-to-air missiles, tanks, and supersonic combat stuff. And we know that uh, that all went through Hillary's State Department. Yep. Yeah. It's just, just totally flipping unbelievable, <laughs> and uh, it is really, really unbelievable. You gotta get, you gotta go to this article, motherboard. Um, yeah, so check it out. Yeah, motherboard.vice.com. Let's um, this was an interesting thought. We're losing up to $400 billion annually to tax evasion. Imagine that. That's five times more than the entire stamp food stamp uh, program cost uh, to feed 50 million people. Think about that. The, time, the next time you try to blame the struggling mom for her debt. For our debt. Or for our debt. Sorry about that. Isn't that interesting? This is from the other 98%. Vermont residents don't want to foot the bill for for Syrian refugees. That's that's Bernie Town. Yeah, really. Wait a minute. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> Some small town residents of Rutland, Vermont, are upset at their mayor's decision to resettle 100 Syrian refugees throughout 2017 in the area. Rutland Mayor Christopher Loris defended this decision by saying the town's demographics are declining and they are having trouble recruiting younger workers. He also thinks refugees will bring cultural diversity. We need people, uh, declared to the New York Times. Laura's decision sparked outrage among some residents who say they had little uh, say in the mayor's decision, which would affect them all, and they formed an advocacy group called Rutland's First to pressure Laura to reverse his decision. An open letter on the first on the group's Facebook page says Rutland's first does not condone violence of any kind toward anyone. 
And continuing, we may disagree with the mayor's actions uh, to our community for a variety of reasons, but never have we want, wanted him to harm, to come to any human being. You know? So like, it's like we don't want you, but we love you. Well, uh, I think they should have been consulted. Well, they don't. They don't care. They don't. They don't want them, but they love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's the thing. Get out of here. Get the hell out of here. But we love you. We love them better in another state. We we wish you'd go to the next town so they don't. They can support you. Replacing Obamacare will be difficult, and repealing it could be just as hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we know that's coming up. And, I don't uh, see how that's gonna work. I don't know. Oh, this was so funny, Lana. This was good. I I don't know if I I can play this for you, but this is uh, ISIS. ISIS wise. Coming up this season on the Real Housewives of ISIS. It's only three days till with a headache. And I've got no idea what I'm gonna wear. Abdul seduced me online. She had me at free healthcare. So this is my sixth marriage. I've uh, been widowed five times. Six times. I'm so glad I've moved over here. It's everything those guys on the chat room told me it would be. And it's full of so many wonderful surprises. Enough to do this to Bernie. Are you ready, girl? Yeah. Hang on, I'm recording it for Instagram. One minute thing on ISIS wives. Ta-da! What do you think? Oh, they surprised me with it yesterday. Hashtag OMG. Hashtag Jane. Hashtag death to the West ISIS emoji. Oh, babes, I love it. You look gorgeous. She looked massive. You're gonna need a lot of Semtex to kill that one. Oh, guys. Hey, ladies. What do you think of this? <laughs> what a complete beach. She knew I had that jacket. Copies everything. Copy this. Oh, my God. It was so cringe. Hashtag matchy matchy. Times like this, I wish I'd never moved out here. Coming up next week. Come on, stop talking about his 40 birdies. Why can't it be happy with this? Uh, Ali bought me a new chain, which is eight foot long. <laughs> so I can almost get outside, which is great. <laughs> these are these are ISIS wives who are yeah. enjoying their their uh, their. <laughs> Let's take a look and give it a reality check. 
a little over a week ago, President Obama quietly signed into law the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act. That act is a military funding act, and in this case, it authorized $611 billion for military spending in 2017. No big deal, right? But so often, there are additional laws and spending bills tucked into the NDAA, and this year was no exception. This time, it was something called the Countering Foreign Propaganda and Disinformation Act of 2016. Oh, yes, this bill, which was on the Senate side, sponsored by Ohio Senator Rob Portman, is designed to combat what is called foreign propaganda from organizations such as RT, China's CCTV, or Iran's Press TV. Here's why Portman says the bill is necessary. Quote, surprisingly, there is currently no single U.S. governmental agency or department charged with the national-level deployment, integration, and synchronization of whole government strategies to counter foreign propaganda and disinformation. Well, there is now. That bipartisan bill will establish an interagency center housed at the State Department to coordinate and synchronize counter-propaganda efforts throughout the U.S. government. The bill also creates a grant program for NGOs, for think tanks, civil society, and other experts outside government who are, quote, engaged in counter-propaganda-related work. Now, let's be clear. This is being sold as countering propaganda, but how do you do that? After all, if government agencies put out information to the public for the sake of altering the point of view, isn't that the very definition of propaganda? In fact, that definition is this, information, ideas, or rumors deliberately spread widely to help or harm a person, a group, a movement, an institution, a nation, etc. So this law essentially funds U.S. propaganda, but isn't that illegal? It was. But no, not anymore, because three years ago, wrapped inside the 2013 NDAA, was an amendment that removed the ban on the U.S. government creating propaganda and then showing it to U.S. citizens. That ban, by the way, had been in place since 1948. The 2013 amendment struck down a ban on domestic dissemination of propaganda material produced by the State Department and the Independent Broadcasting Board of Governors. It neutralized the Smith-Munt Act of 1948 and the Foreign Relations Authorization Act in 1987 that had been passed to protect U.S. audiences from our own government's misinformation campaigns. And in 2013, when that bill was passed, most media said, oh, don't worry, the U.S. government will never actually create propaganda. Well, now they've created a mechanism to fund it. So what you need to know is that politicians claiming we need to fund U.S. government propaganda to protect the public from the Russians and from the Chinese. But there's a reason it was illegal for over 60 years for our government to propagandize the public, to protect the public from our own government. Reality check. Right now, two out of every three Americans in the latest polls say they have little to no trust in mainstream American media because two-thirds of Americans already believe that they're not getting the truth. That number will likely only get worse with the legalized American government propaganda. So what is the solution here? Well, how about media just tells the truth, just reports facts, does not act as an arm for political parties or for government institutions? If we want to combat propaganda, both foreign and domestic, then shouldn't we just inform the public rather than trying to control their views? That's a reality check. Let's talk about it on Twitter. Now, reality check, but this is this is put out by CBS 46. Isn't that interesting? So they're trying to, you know, you don't know what's true anymore. You, you really don't. You know what I mean? You just don't. So 
that's our show tonight. I want to thank everybody who joined us, and we um, enjoyed, you know, really enjoyed having you with us. So, for that, I want to thank you and wish you good night, right, Lana? Yeah, good night, folks. Have uh, a good night. And that was the first show of the new year, and we'll see you again next week. Good night, everyone.